Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast, presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey, co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. We are thrilled to announce the launch of this podcast network to add more avenues to grow awareness and innovation around analytics and sports. We are excited to make the panel discussions from our 2019 conference, which covers a wide range of sports and analytics topics available via podcast for the very first time. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good afternoon and welcome to the 2019 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Don Xiang and I'm a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan. And it's my pleasure to introduce you to today's panel, The Wild West of Analytics other industry perspectives on use and misuse of data. Today's panelists, um, we have Governor Charlie Baker, who is the current governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. We also have Nate Silver, the editor-in-chief of 538. We have Ann Milgram, who is a professor at the New York University School of Law and also former attorney general of the state of New Jersey. And the panel will be moderated by Corbin Petro, who is the CEO of Benavera Health. The panel will run for 45 minutes, and we'll have the last 10 minutes open for questions. If you're interested in submitting a question, you can do so via Twitter using the hashtag WildAnalytics. And with that, I'll kick it off to Corbin. Great. Thank you, Don. Um, well, I'm so excited to get the discussion started with this panel of luminaries in non-sports industries. Uh, you probably notice on your app that Nate is not the one on the app. We had a last-minute cancellation, um, and so we, we wish uh, Gary Loveman the best, but are thrilled to have Nate join us. He is the ultimate um, pinch hitter, so appreciate that. Um, so um, we'll discuss again for about 45 minutes. Our hashtag is the best hashtag of the day, Wild Analytics. Um, so before I hand it over to our panelists, I, I really want to set the stage briefly. So we're obviously all here as believers of data and analytics. Um, and believe it, it helps us to make decisions in both sports and in other industries. But the use of data analytics is not a panacea and can lead to unintended consequences, reinforcing biases, and questions of ethics. Most notably, this past year, the public was stunned when it was revealed how Cambridge Analytica used Facebook data to manipulate users' perspectives that likely impacted the 2016 US presidential election. The reality is, is that technology is moving quicker than we can establish acceptable frameworks. Organizations are more and more responsible for not only collecting data, but also using it in a responsible manner and for the greater good. Obviously, this isn't unique to sports, so we look to other industries to discuss the challenges and potential paths forward. So with that, I'd like to ask each of, each of you uh, to tell us one way that you've used data and analytics uniquely uh, in your work. And we're going to start with uh, Governor Baker. Thanks, Corbin. Um, I guess the first thing I would say uh, is government basically is in the business of collecting lots of data. And in many cases, we do it because we have a statutory mandate. And a lot of it's pretty basic stuff around births and deaths, traffic accidents, um, stuff like that. One of the biggest places governments collect data is around weather. And that's not just for the, for the news. That's more about protection. Um, a big part of the government's move into collecting weather data was to make sure that people had time to deal with terrible weather events before they occurred. And that particular field has gotten dramatically better over the course of the past 20, 25 years. But one of the places where we found data particularly helpful was around dealing with the opioid epidemic 
here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And um, a lot of the big issues in government generally about data is people collect it for a very particular purpose. So it sits in a database for a very particular purpose and gets used for a particular purpose. When we were trying to figure out what was going on with the opioid epidemic, where it was, where the hotspots were, what we should be doing about it, who it was affecting, and that sort of thing, we literally had to pull data out of about eight or nine different data sets. And they're all, the definitions in them are different. Um, the sort of key elements that define the data structure are different. So then you have to take it and you have to scrub it and sort it. But we learned some really important things from doing that. The biggest thing we learned was where we had our biggest problems geographically in the Commonwealth and how big they were. And in some respects, this dramatically changed people's uh, understanding both about the geography and the scale of the epidemic, which then gave us guidance with respect to where we needed to make sure we had treatment capacity and also how we needed to go about developing preventive interventions. And, uh, and in some respects, I think a lot of people, once we put all this stuff together, sorted it and scrubbed it, were really surprised by the size and scale of the problem. Because most people like to think that something like that is not in my community, it's in somebody else's. And one of the big lessons people learned was it was everywhere. Nate, we'll just go down the line. Yeah, so. I'm not quite sure how to answer the question because like everything we do at 538 <laughs> is about data. Um, and yeah, so I've been running 538 now for a bit more than, than 10 years. Um, obviously a lot of what we focus on is in um, politics and sports. Um, but you know, more and more journalism period has data really as, as the backbone of it or as a core element of it. Um, I had a chance last year to be uh, one of the people who uh, helps to judge the Pulitzer Prizes, which a lot of people do. It's like 100 judges, so it's not that much of an honor. Um, but still, it's very cool to like spend- 100 out of 300 million? I don't know, that sounds it's very cool. good to me. It's very cool, yeah. I hope they invite me back. Um, <laughs> but you have basically spend two days locked in a room with other journalists reading lots of work of great journalism that has been submitted for Pulitzer Prizes and like seeing how many of those stories involve a data element. Um, and often it has to do with cases where a federal agency or a state agency is deficient in collecting data or where a private agency owns the data but, um, but doesn't share it with the public, right? So there's a project, for example, that was done, um, uh, I think this year, um, about like the fact that there's still lots of racial discrimination in who gets mortgages and whatnot. Um, if you look at data for, okay, how come in this community only 20% of black families are approved for mortgages, but 70% of white families. Um, it's a difficult problem because you have to actually control for other factors, income and so forth, but you control for those and you still see huge and very direct evidence of, of racial bias. Um, you know, data on crime, um, to actually know kind of how many people are murdered, for example, in the United States every year is a much more difficult problem than you would think, where it's all locally collected, eventually it comes to the FBI, but only through a lot of long, um, drawn out period before that happens. So it's kind of the very core of, of I think, of what journalism is about and also what kind of civic life is about is that we are dealing with populations where there are millions of people in every state and to, to, um, to make better public policy decisions, you have to at some level kind of collect accurate data. Now I think the thing is like, we're also at a phase now where it's very sexy to use data and to say you're data driven um, and to use fancy terms like machine learning and artificial intelligence. Um, and there certainly is a lot of abuse of data too. We might be at, as a society, 
a little bit of a sophomoric stage where we um, have all these cool new tools that we want to use and don't really know kind of what the, what the limits and what the constraints are and don't know that like human beings who use data have agency over that data, right? It's not just a computer program that makes a decision, it's a computer program designed by a programmer or a coder or an analyst um, that makes a decision instead. So I would, uh, I think, give two examples of ways in which I've used data. The first is really the story of how I became interested in using data and analytics, which is that when I became AG for the state of New Jersey, in my prior jobs, I'd been a criminal prosecutor. And on day one, when I became AG, a prior attorney general had taken over the Camden, New Jersey Police Department. He'd taken over the police department because at the time, Camden and actually had consistently been the most dangerous city in America. And so on day one, I ran a police department. And I can promise you, I did not know how to run a police department. And so I think the only thing I had going for me was that I, because I didn't know, I started asking a lot of questions. What's happening? Where are the police officers? Where is the crime occurring? And I ended up going into their sort of local version of what they consider CompStat, which is made famous in New York, where they map where the police officers are, they map where the crime is, and they try to make sure that officers are assigned to the right locations at the right times. And it goes beyond that. It's more sophisticated. And I think Nate could probably give you a better explanation of the statistics of it. But basically, I walked in, and I'd seen it in Manhattan, and it was an extraordinary thing. And I walked into Camden, and they had little yellow stickies. And they were saying, we had a robbery last week, no suspects. And they put the yellow sticky on the map. Then they did the next one. We had a homicide last week, no suspects, and they put the yellow sticky on the map. And after about three hours of this, we had a wall, a map of Camden, New Jersey, filled with yellow stickies. And I love yellow stickies. I leave them for my husband all the time. Can you please get us some milk? I write notes to our four-year-old. But they are absolutely not a crime-fighting strategy. And so the question I sort of had was, and actually the realization I had in that moment was that as a systemic question, we actually, in policing, in prosecution, in courts, we don't know what we're doing. And because we don't know what we're doing, there's really no way we can figure out, are we doing the best job we can for public safety, for justice, for equity, and all these things that we care deeply about. And so I started using data and analytics in the police department. Within one year, we dropped violent crime by 41%. Camden today still struggles as a city, but it's at right now has the lowest crime rate that it's had since 1940-something. And so it's really an extraordinary story. And I would attribute a lot of that to the data work we did. And I can tell about my current work later, because yeah. I've taken up. Yeah, yeah no, that, that, that's great. And you know, Governor Bacon, you talked a little bit about the opioid crisis, which is, you know, there's a, a great platform in this country to be talking about that right now. Uh, and you collected a lot of data, and you continue to collect a lot of, of data, including mortality data and how that that's sort of trending over time. What are your thoughts on the potential unintended consequences of using that as a, as a benchmark? Um, obviously, I come from healthcare, so I'm immediately drawn to that as a potential topic, but. Well, the biggest issue we have with any data set, and Nate, you guys both nailed it, which is they tend to be old, right? I mean, because of the fact that the data is being collected for a purpose other than an immediate decision-making process, it's usually being collected for some other reason, people don't necessarily think about it in terms of real time. So, I mean, these days, police departments, by the way, have gotten very smart about real time data so that they do know how to deploy their, uh, their men and their women, and it's had a big impact, I mean, big impact on, on crime for the most part in most places. But on the opioid thing, most of the data we were working with when we got started was sort of two years old, and so 
one of the things we've been constantly doing is trying to move it up so that it's more and more recent. We've gotten to the point now where it's like a quarter old. And even as a quarter old, it feels to us like it's not new enough. And we've actually been talking to some people um, about whether or not there are ways to come up with real-time data around, um, around opioids generally. And, um, and part of the problem we, we are going to have with this is the only way it's going to happen is if we create new ways of actually collecting it in the first place because people aren't built to actually collect data like this on a real-time basis because that's not how they think about how you would choose to use it. And I think in government in many cases, you know, you collect data for a purpose, right? In many cases, the data we're using was collected for some purpose other than decision-making and proactive thinking and predictive modeling. And if you start to get into the business of trying to use data that's too old for that purpose, you can make some big mistakes. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think about that, particularly with opioids, where you're tracking sort of overdose deaths, and yet you have a big push to push out naloxone to everyone. So are you getting a false sense of security around a reduction in overdose deaths when it's really, and it's not really helping sort of the addiction problem? All you're doing is sort of pushing out a, you know, a, a fix, a short-term fix out there in the world. So that's one of the things that I... Yeah, I mean, the way to think about that is um, there are a whole series of other elements you can measure. Things like how many people uh, quarter over quarter or end up being um, involuntarily committed, okay? That number is also going down, which is a good sign. Um, you can collect data from some of, because we have data that's pretty good on where the key, uh, the biggest hotspots are in Massachusetts, you can talk to folks in law enforcement and emergency rooms and get a sense from them about what's going on with respect to overdoses generally. It's not a complete field, but it's a lot more current, and in some respects, there's an 80-20 rule of play here. If you collect 20, if you hit 20% of the places that generate 80% of the activity, you can draw some pretty quick conclusions from that. And the other thing you can start to do is think, look at things like our prescription monitoring program and our limits on first-time prescriptions have had a huge impact on opioid prescribing generally, which is down almost 40% over the course of the last five years. We've put up about 1,200 new beds of treatment capacity up around the Commonwealth, uh, primarily in locations where we discovered when we did that original analysis, we didn't have them. And, uh, and I, I think that's one of the other big issues you deal with when you're, when you're playing in the, in the government space, especially there's a lot of variables at play. You control some of the data associated with what drives those variables. In some cases, you don't control all of them. Sometimes you get them from the locals, sometimes you get them from the feds. Um, if you get them from the locals or the feds, even from your own agencies, People tend to use different ways of collecting it, which then creates issues around data definition. Um, so it's, what I try to do is create approaches to this stuff that can create something that I would call the correct direction. That if we believe enough of what we've got here to be sort of 85% confident, or even 80% confident that the following things will make a difference, go for it, but then keep track of it and see if it actually starts to move it and be open to the idea that you may not have all the elements you need to be successful. And maybe you can talk a little bit about the work that you've done in, in pretrial sentencing and the data collection that you sort of embarked upon and you know, the, the potential challenges with, with that data set. I know we've, we've talked a little bit about it. Sure, so um, when I was AG in New Jersey, I oversaw the Juvenile Justice Commission. And 
the Juvenile Justice Commission uh, was, there was too much incarceration. And so we started this process of how to reduce incarceration. And we worked on a project that ultimately went statewide, um, which was called Juvenile Detentions Alternatives Initiative. It's in a number of states. Um, and we dropped juvenile, we dropped juvenile incarceration. We cut it in half. We went from about 1,000, 1,100 kids to 500. And the primary lever of change in that was a risk assessment. We, they were homegrown, they were not scientifically created. It was, you know, an algorithm can be anything, it could be a recipe, this was like a homemade recipe. We put judges and prosecutors and defense lawyers in a room and we said, you tell us what you think, what are the questions as to whether or not a youth should be detained? And it was really important because we, we were 98% minority and it simply could not be right. And so we were sort of asking the question of what's happening. We couldn't put our finger exactly on what was happening in the system, but we knew something was happening that shouldn't be happening. We also knew that when we looked at the kids who were in juvenile justice, that all of them, we did not believe needed to be there. So we used this algorithm statewide and then we dropped juvenile detention. We cut it in about half. So I then went, I, I went to work for Laura and John Arnold, who are Texas philanthropists, um, who started a national foundation, and I set up their criminal justice team. And the question we sort of asked was, could we do the same thing in the adult population? Um, I don't know if any of you heard Meek Mills talk about it today, but there are millions of Americans who are incarcerated. Right now, there are 70 million Americans with criminal arrest records, almost one in five. It's an extraordinary situation we've gotten ourselves in, and we incarcerate at a rate far higher than our economic peers. And so to me, there are a number of reasons why our system is deeply broken. This is one of them. And we wanted to look at where were there potential levers of change. So we went out across the country and we gathered, we built the largest pretrial data set in the country, um, which by the way, I actually think should belong in states and the federal government, truthfully. But we went out and we said, please give us all your data. We ultimately were able to build a very basic risk assessment tool, a logistic regression that took information from arrest records. We didn't use arrests, we used convictions, um, whether or not the current offense was violence, the age at current violence. At, at the current age at, at the offense. Um, and we put this into an algorithm, a pretrial risk assessment for judges. It's now in about 42 jurisdictions. Um, what's really important about the algorithm and the work that we did, there are a few points. First is that we never took the decision making away from the judges. What we understood was that the judges thought that they were releasing low risk offenders and detaining high risk offenders. And yet every single jurisdiction across America that we went into and we pulled the data, we found the exact opposite. So we found huge percentages of low risk people who were being detained on very small amounts of bail that they could not afford to pay. And we found about half, and it's a very small group of people who are high risk, meaning they're very likely to commit a new crime or commit an act of violence. We found half of those folks were being released. And in one major city, that equaled over 200 violent crimes the following year. So it's very serious questions. And we found that the opposite of what the judges intended was, was happening. So we built the risk tools as a basis for them to use before they made the decisions. Um, I think the best example of sort of the work that we did, and by the way, we did it pretty much to reduce incarceration and candidly to eliminate bail, right? To sort of how do you get to a place where you're not detaining people based on finance, by, based on economic means? And the short answer was I just personally, and I would love to hear Nate on this actually, but I just didn't believe that you could go from a completely subjective system to a completely, to, you, you couldn't take a system with bail and then turn it into a completely subjective system where judges just got to decide 
by picking you go to jail, you don't go to jail without something objective in there, like a baseline risk tool, um, really to understand are people a risk to society. The best example is the state of New Jersey took the risk tool, built an entire new statutory scheme over it. So the risk tool is one of many pieces that gets run and the judges get information on. They've now reduced their overall incarceration rates by almost 40%. The total rate of incarceration for people who touch the system is around six or seven percent, which is just an extraordinary thing. And so, you know, that's that was the basis of, of the work I did at the Arnold's. That's that's awesome. I know we've we've talked about sort of that the, part. Um, yes. Yeah. So like just just the the inherent data set that, that yes. you're working with is already biased. Yes. Because all it is is those who are arrested, not those who are the offenders. Yes. And we know that our criminal justice system, which is doing the arresting. Is already has significant racial bias yes. embedded within it, and so you're sort of already dealing with a flawed data set. So how do you how do you improve that? So I think uh, it's a great point. So first of all, the data is biased, as Nate said, which is that all data is biased. Whoever's working on it or deciding you collect it has a level of bias. In criminal justice, because of disproportionate minority contact with the police, all of the criminal justice data is arguably biased. I personally believe it is biased. I would say this though. I think we've been having, and I think this is a really important conversation, and I know Nate's team has written on this. I think in some ways we have to step back in one specific way, which is to ask the question of, is the American criminal justice system biased? Is, are there structural inequalities that exist in the system? I would argue very strongly yes, and I would argue that the system is broken and needs to be reformed. If you get to that point where I am, I think you then get to the question of, well, how do you do that? And to me, data is an essential piece of how you do that to make the system safer, to make the system more equitable, and to make the system um, basically work for everyone. Now, and to do things like eliminate bail. Now, the question I think we should be asking and the conversation we should be having is, okay, we have data that we know is biased. To me, it doesn't mean we don't use it. The question is, how do we use it? Who gets access to it? What information do we use? I personally would never, like the Arnold Risk Tool is completely transparent. There's research going on. There's randomized control trials going on. There's data bias studies. The state of New Jersey every year will run a bias study. But I think as a nation and even as states and cities, we have to have this conversation of how should we use data, who gets access to it, and when should we not use data, candidly? Like, when is it not fair? When is it discriminatory? Um, but I do think this bias question is really important. And I also think it exists in healthcare and education and that there's a level of structural inequality and bias in our system that we should be talking about and thinking about Again, not to not use data and analytics, but to think about how we use it in a way that all of us are comfortable. Yeah. And I mean, Nate, as somebody who has sort of a pulse on all things data and analytics, like how would you, how would you respond to some of what Anne said? And are, are there ways that you're seeing industries improve the accuracy of their data, the use of their data? I mean, the point of it's, it's hard to go from like totally subjective to totally objective, and also the fact that there are a million different ways to have a, a data-driven system, right? Um, like that certainly rings true. Um, the point about kind of a bias sample and data collection, right? I see this in sports applications too, right? People will say, well, um, it turns out that, uh, that height doesn't matter to NFL quarterbacks because you look at all the quarterbacks who are drafted and the ones who uh, are tall do just as well as the ones who are short or vice versa, right? Um, the problem is like you already have a very biased sample in the sense that only the best quarterbacks get drafted. And the fact that you're drafted is a signal that whether you're tall or short, you're probably really good at football to begin with. Um, and so it's hard, right? It's like 
Uh, look, a lot of our long-term goal at 538 is to try to improve data literacy. Um, and a lot of that also involves like uh, trying to understand that like people need to understand the context of the system to understand how to interpret data and how to design good algorithms in the first place, right? People will sometimes say, okay, 538, you know, why don't you go predict this election in Germany or whatnot or the UK? Partly because when we've tried to do that, it turns out that having like fairly subtle misunderstanding of the system and why it's different in the United States will almost eliminate like all the value that you provide in terms of making predictions. All of a sudden you're like no better than anyone else. Um, so understanding that like where, uh, what's the function that generates data um, what does that data represent? I don't mean in some way like, oh, it's, you know, every data is human being, it's a cliche, it's also true, but understanding that like um, what your goal is and kind of what problem you're trying to solve. I think a lot of the problem that like that Facebook has, for example, is like they're not sure what they're trying to optimize for. Um, if you design an algorithm and you're not sure like what you want to try to optimize for, then it's going to be a bad algorithm period. You know, I have the advantage at 538 where, where we have this explicit goal of making good probabilistic forecasts. So we have actual ways to measure that. In sports, right, you either wanna win or make money or both. And so again, sports, a lot easier when you kind of know what you're trying to solve for. But a lot of the time in criminal justice, in areas of government, you don't know that. Um, and you have to decide that before you go about thinking you can design a good, a good algorithm or even, or even a good data collection tool. And most of those tools are usually built to just collect the data and what happened so that there's a record and a file there. People weren't necessarily building it to turn it into a decision tool or a management tool. So when you get into the issue that you're talking about with respect to a variety of different sources where you gotta pull data from, you're probably dealing with multiple biases, multiple ways of collecting it based on what people think they're collecting it for, and then trying to mash it together and turn it into a decision model. Um, the other, I mean, frankly, on the criminal justice stuff, the other thing people should be paying attention to is do we have less crime than we had before after we implement the tool? Right. Because to some extent, if you do, then the answer to your question is, that's my 85% directional thing. If the answer is we're getting the kind of result we want, which is fewer people are being incarcerated, fewer people are getting arrested, and we have less crime, and the focus of our resources is more on where they belong based on the data we've got, then the answer to that one on an experience basis is that seems to be working. If all of the other measures start heading in the wrong direction, then that means your data set's probably not very good and people aren't making the decisions that you would hope they would be making. So my view is you gotta just stay on it and try and make sure that if you move in a particular direction, when you look at the other variables with respect to how you define success, if you start to see progress on those, Keep going. If you see the exact opposite of what you think you're supposed to be achieving, then that means you better do something else. Or presume that you're now dealing with something where it's just going to take longer to get the change that you're seeking with respect to the direction you're moving in. So one of the things Just why it stinks that they're in two and four year terms, because yeah. it makes it very <laughs> yeah, it makes it hard for people to think long term. Right. So to, to your earlier point, one of the things that we talked about was sort of all the data that governments are sort of required to, to collect. And you know, we, we talked about sort of you're sitting on this data gold mine, I don't know what you want to call it, data repository. It's a ton of information. Right. And it's and it's you know, the question would be sort of what you know, what responsibility does government have or or not have to, to use that that data? 
you're sitting on something that could be beneficial to society, or you're sitting on something that could be detrimental to somebody's inherent privacy. So what are your, yep. what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I guess what I would say is, first of all, government needs to do a good job of protecting the data that it has, right? I mean, one of the things we've spent a lot of time o over the past couple of years is improving our cybersecurity. Um, I'm not going to get into that one because it would you would it'd make me faint and then it'd make you faint if I told you about the way governments generally protect their data. Um, uh, but um, <laughs> what I would say is that we do have um, what I would describe as sort of the ability to, sometimes we get told statutorily that there's certain stuff we just can't make. HIPAA is probably the best example in healthcare, which really sort of laid down the law at the federal level um, when people first started developing medical, electronic medical records about what you could share and what you couldn't share, what you can make public, what had to be de-identified and all the rest. Um, and I think in some respects, the way we think about this stuff, if you get into really personal information, we're gonna be enormously careful about what we do with it, okay? Um, but one of the things we have done is a lot of our public transportation data, it's available, right? Practically all of it. Where it goes, how long it takes, what last week looked like, what the week before looked like. And we've had all kinds of people, very smart people, take that data and develop apps. Um, and we actually picked one based on what they were doing as the sort of app we liked best that users of the system should use to figure out what the best way to get to where they were going, best time to go with respect to historical issues around delay and all the rest. And that's not an app I think we ever could have written ourselves, but by just giving that to the public and saying, Somebody out there must be able to help us figure out what the right way uh, to manipulate and, and structure this data is to give customers better information about uh, how to use the system. And we got a bunch of great responses, and one in particular that we picked. What other ways do you think we could crowdsource data? I know that's sort of a positive consequence. We, did, you know, we talked a little about Waze yep. and how Waze has, um, in many ways, you know, revolutionized how people get to where they're going. But from a you know, government oversight and just human perspective driving around, um, all, all of a sudden, you know, these nice lonely country roads are being, you know, swamped <laughs> with people at 4 p.m. On the after, in the afternoon because Waze has decided that's a, that's a fast That's a good way to get there, yeah. Um, there are certain things that feel sort of me like water running down a hill. And I, and, you know, what was it Jeff Goldblum said in the Jurassic Park movie, Nature Will Find a Way? Some of this is just going to happen. And for me, the big thing is the stuff I'm perfectly happy to see find its way into the public domain and give people a chance to manipulate it and, and, and solve problems is stuff that's inanimate, right? I get very nervous about any data that involves people um, or their you know, circumstances, situation, identification, and all the rest. And... Um, but a lot of the rest, I mean, um, uh, there was a guy in uh, Michael Lewis's most recent book, The Fifth Risk, who took all that weather data and a whole bunch of data about soil composition that he got from the Bureau of the Interior, mashed it all together, and created a really great tool that he could offer farmers to help them understand when to plant, what to plant, when to you know, which crops were gonna work based on, you know, years and years of weather patterns and all the rest. Yes, go for it. I think that's a real contribution because government as its, as its own entity is probably never gonna 
that's not like a core function of government, so government's never going to figure that out. Um, but, but data that involves, I mean, you get into the issues around privacy with respect to a lot of the data we have about people, uh, whether it's healthcare, criminal justice, a whole bunch of other areas, taxes, uh, income. I get nervous about so, that yeah, stuff. You talk about criminal justice and healthcare. I mean, your work in Camden sort of combining those two things. Yeah, so I, so I did a project in um, probably about three or four years ago where we partnered with the Camden Coalition of Healthcare Providers and they had the data for all three of the hospitals in Camden. And Camden's a unique place because we were able, the, the health information exchange had all the information essentially on, on the hospital use. We pushed the criminal justice data into the healthcare data. Um, and the question we were really asking is, what's the overlap between frequent users of the criminal justice system and the healthcare system? I would have guessed high, but even I was surprised to see that it was a 67% overlap. And basically, it was, a, it was something like more than six or seven criminal justice arrests and more than 15 hospitalizations in a five-year period. This is like all de-identified. All de-identified. Yeah, right. All de-identified and not public, I should also right. add. This was a, this was a study we, we conducted. Um, but it told us a number of things. When we actually started to look at that 67% population, what we saw were off-the-chart numbers, and again, none of this is surprising, but when you see the data, it does sort of, it, it really makes you realize a few things. We saw off-the-chart rates of mental health, mental illness, um, addiction, and homelessness. And the truth of the systems, and we sort of studied people who'd cycled in and out of both systems, was that it was pretty front and center that these people had these challenges, and yet neither system was working to fix them. They were treating the symptoms of those problems. They weren't treating the underlying problems. So people were cycling in and out of ERs, getting bandages, getting broken arms fixed. They were going in and out of the jail for 30 days, 50 days. But nobody was really dealing with the underlying problems. And so we've started a project now with Indianapolis, with the city of Indianapolis, where, well, let me step back and say one thing. There is today not a single criminal justice jurisdiction in America that before people go into the system screens for mental health, substance abuse, or homelessness. There's a screening that's run when people are in jail, but prior to people entering or being detained by a judge and a prosecutor, there's not a single jurisdiction that runs this. So for Indianapolis, we're now beta testing a tool we've built for the police to screen for these three things. And we're working with them to revise their whole system so that everyone who goes through the system will be screened for mental health, substance abuse, um, homelessness, trauma, and traumatic brain injury. Only with the consent of the defendant and the defense counsel would we use that information to build an alternative to incarceration, right? Because today in America, the question is, do we incarcerate you? Do we release you? And there is no third path. And so the question we're asking, and you know, we're, really, we're really sort of ground floor on this, is could we build another path that really tries to treat the underlying, um, the underlying things that we know often are causes of crime? Let's push back on that a little. Yeah. Um, we have drug courts. We have vets courts. We have, we have specialty courts for a whole variety of areas that get at these issues. Um, before somebody makes a decision about what you just described as release or incarcerate. And um, do we I would, have... I would disagree we, with that. <clears throat> you would disagree? I would disagree with a that. A drug court that I, establishes a, huge, a path to treatment for somebody and I'm doesn't a, incarcerate them? I'm Is a huge doing fan of drug, drug courts. Okay. And, and they, they differ in different states, and the recidivism rates are incredibly lower. The thing I would disagree with is... is 
really how difficult it is for people to get in and how few people can get treatment through them. And many people are incarcerated, at least in New Jersey and in New York, before they go into drug court. So I love them and I think the world of them. The question I would have is, and, and just sort of pose back to you is, at what point in the process do we want people to get that help? And courts have taken over because I think they sort of have to. Nobody else is doing it. But I guess the question is, if you could, See, if you could do anything. That's not true either. There are police departments all over the Commonwealth that um, if you show up and say you're dealing with an addiction, they will find you treatment. Right. I, um, I agree. That program, the PARI program, which is now nationwide and has hundreds of police departments participating in it, started in Massachusetts. And there are also um, a whole variety of processes that people have set up in their communities that are designed to help people get the treatment instead of going through the court system and all the rest. I mean, do I think that we are doing everything we should be doing there? No. But I don't think it's as black and white as you just... It might be in New Jersey. It's not in Massachusetts. I don't mean to suggest it's black and white, but I think if we pulled the numbers of who's incarcerated, you and I would both see a majority of people who suffer from serious behavioral health questions. Certainly in the, yeah. And it just sort of begs the question to me, which is, and, and I agree, there are amazing things happening and, and there's some organic things happening in local communities. But as a system, it, I think we are, there's no question in my mind that we are incarcerating people who have serious conditions that could be treated effectively, ultimately reducing crime and improving public safety. And I think the question I think probably all of us would ask is, what's the right way to get at them? And how do we start to think about that upstream? And that's, that's where I think we probably are um, not, not in disagreement. Okay. Debate. Yeah, we can, and we can, we can disagree, but I, I, I sort of I agree with what the governor said. I think at the end of the day, the name of the game is better data and better decision making with an understanding that um, I mean, we've done criminal justice twice. We have the lowest incarceration rate in the country. Um, people spend a lot of time working these issues. And that was the only point I was making is this is very, I mean, political entities, given the distributed nature of how we make decisions, tend to take a long time to change. But I absolutely believe that there are a lot of people in the system who are trying very hard to move in the direction and are succeeding that you described. So you, so you mentioned the, the area that you have concerns is, is when you know, you're collecting behavior about people or data about people and then you're sort of making decisions or doing things with that data. Are there certain industries that you all feel are held to a higher standard when it comes to data use and data privacy? And do you think- Healthcare, think definitely. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's fair? I mean, I think that's the <coughs> bigger question too. Um, yes. I, I guess what I would say is that the, the thing that's troubling about healthcare, for example, is, is because the standard is so high, some really simple things really aren't that easy to find. Um, for example, um, in almost every industry you can think of, one of the things you would like to know about the person you're going to for service is how many times they've done it, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but um, if I'm going to have somebody crack my chest open um, or my mother's chest open or my wife's or one of my kids, I'd love to know just how many times they've done that procedure. And the data will show that the more time, the more reps... Usually, the, there's, the way it works is it's like your classic thing, which is you've, if you've never done it, right? then the problem is, or you only do it a few times, when you hit a certain point, right, you kind of level off. And then if you've done it that many times, you're probably about it, and you're, 
you know, you're as good as your peers, you're going to be okay. But there's absolutely a lot of variation for people who don't do stuff very often. That is really hard data to find in the public domain. And, you know, we're going to, I've been talking to our data folks about trying to get that data out at some point actually this year because I think that's like a baseline question. It's all de-identified. It's relatively uncomplicated. But the pushback you get from people is, why would you ever, you know, unless there's some controlled four group, six divided by five study that shows that volume matters, why would you put that data out there? Well, it kind of feels to me like it's common sense. But there are areas, especially in the healthcare world, where the whole push against putting data in the public domain is, um, is the whole question about false positives. I mean, I think journalists are held to very high standards, and they, and they should be. Um, but I think people don't often understand that journalism is done, and it's a time-sensitive field by nature, right? You're trying to um, record, explain, uh, investigate, uh, you know, current events. And so therefore, you're doing all this stuff in real time, which is a lot harder than in like an academic setting, for example, where it's months before your paper will even be submitted to like a reviewer or something like that. Um, you know, I think governments also are held to a very high standard, but I would say as someone who like over the years has taken lots and lots and lots of data sets, you know, in general, uh, government put together data sets are pretty good. They're in general a lot better than when you get a data set from a private company that doesn't have as much transparency um, in kind of what's going to be looked at, really kind of scrutinizing the records. And like, you know, it takes a lot of work to actually make a data set clean. Um, and to like look at your outlying cases and say, is this real data or is this a mistake when someone was coding the data or a mistake in how the system is set up or something else, right? And so, um, so I think if you look at data sets put together by governments or by journalistic organizations because they're under so much scrutiny, it does actually help those data sets to be higher quality. I guess I would almost, I sort of, I think criminal justice has a hard time in data, and part of it is that in a lot of spaces we don't collect the kind of data that I think we need. And so, for example, um, police departments, I think, are really advanced in collecting data. Prosecutors' offices, we generally collect um, how many people are charged, how many people are convicted, what's the length of sentence, which to me, those are not the right metrics to use if you care about public safety um, you know, fairness, all kinds of questions. Um, and and so, historically, that's yeah. how people get measured. The, well, I, right? but I think, I think there's this fundamental question of how do we define and measure yeah. in some of these spaces. Totally and and yeah. what, you, what the governor said before about people collect data in silos for what they do is really right. And so the police department collects data in silos for arrests for the number of people they process. They're not necessarily thinking like we might be sitting here thinking, okay, public safety is more than just the absence of crime. What about recidivism rates? You know, and if you went into any police department in America, most of them don't have access to regularized recidivism rates. Who's coming back? I would argue that's really important to know in terms of how you're doing. And so I actually almost think the conversation is, we have a lot of data in government and in other spaces, but the conversation in a lot of the public safety spaces I'm in now are what are the right questions we should be asking about whether we're doing a good job, whether it's the whole system, policing, prosecution, or courts, and then let's go out and get those pieces of data we need under 
those questions, and then we can start answering some of it, because I do think we're all a little handicapped by using the data that people rightly collect to run their day-to-day -day operations. But here's another example. Think about policing and all these conversations we're having nationally about policing, and you know, I am deeply impressed by a lot of the data work police departments use. Almost no police departments actually have community input in that data, in the data that they're running. And so, you know, there are questions, I think, if we really stepped back and said, what would we want to know to know whether someone is being successful at the things we care about, you know, I think some of the data sets we would want would be different. Um, and so that's where I almost think some of the challenges, at least in the criminal justice space, come. Can I just come back to this journalist question that Nate raised? Um, on the opioid issue, the two best books that have ever been written about this issue were both written by journalists. One was Sam Quinones from the Los Angeles Times, who wrote a five-part series in the LA Times about uh, black tar heroin from Mexico, and it turned into a book called Dreamland, which is, in my opinion, sort of the Bible on um, how the opioid crisis happened in America. And the other one is a woman named Beth Nacy, who writes for uh, I think the Nashville newspaper, who also did like a five-part series on opioids in Appalachia, which then led to a book called uh, Dope Sick. Mm -hmm. And those are just killer research projects. And most of the data that came out of that, they got from government. But what they did with it and how they were able um, to translate it into real information, which is the difference between data and real information, was extraordinary. And I. Look, I, I think some of the best, a public official, you know, I don't always love what the media has to say about me or people on my team every day, but um, some of the most important data and some of the most important information that I've gleaned for a lot of things I've done for the past five years and previously when I served in other administrations came from work that was done by journalists with data that in some respects often belonged to us. Mm -hmm. So Charlie, you said you don't always like what people say about you. As a, data point, as a data point, you, How are do you, do most, you are the most popular governor in America. What potential negative implications could that have on you and your performance? I mean, Nate, Nate you do this work all the time on, on political data. Reporting out certain pieces of data sometimes have negative, negative implications if, you know, if those have repercussions to people's actions. So both of, both of you political people. What do you think about those, those concepts? I guess I would say that I think the most important thing about data is this whole question about direction. Um, and, and if somebody puts out a report that says something is broken inside what we're doing, um, take it seriously. And if you don't take it seriously, then you're kind of walking away from an opportunity to either do it better um, or you're creating um, confusion for the people that work in your organization. Uh, remember, government is sort of a it's, a, it's a, it's a management exercise and it's a service delivery enterprise and a data collection enterprise that operates in the public domain. I've worked in the private sector and I've worked in the public sector. And the single biggest difference is in the public sector, what you do every day is potentially gonna show up um, in the news. That's not true for the vast majority of the people who work in, in the private sector. So if you're pushing information um, from the outside into your entity and its government and people work in it and you're the leader of that and you're not doing anything with data that's coming from the outside, then the people who work for you are sort of like, well, what's going on? Why? We just saw this thing. Why isn't 
why, why aren't the leaders of our enterprise doing anything about it? And I think that's, um, I try really hard not to create a lot of confusion between what I would call the top of the stack and the rest of the stack with respect to the people who work in government. I mean, as a journalist, you know, I think your, uh, your goal is to inform the public and create reliable and accurate information and that you shouldn't actually worry so much about, about how that's used, although obviously there are concerns around privacy and whatever else, right? You know, sometimes we'll have people say, well, what effect do you think your election forecasts have on turnout? And my answer is I don't really care um, because it's not my job to boost turnout or to lower turnout or whatever else, right? That's the job of candidates and political parties. And if governments think, as I do, that good turnout is better, they can make voting easier, for example. Um, but you know, your job as a journalist should be, this is a very traditional view, I guess, um, should be to provide accurate information to people, accurate conclusions. We do things that are probabilistic, right? So we judge accuracy by over the long run, do 70% of your seven in 10 probabilities happen. Um, and so in that sense, it's, a, a, I think, a, a an easier question for me than in government, for example. Because um, once you get into a slippery slope of like, well, what will people do with this information, then, then number one, like you start to be in a case where you're trying to influence political outcomes instead of just study them and help people understand them. Um, and number two, there's like no real like stopping point necessarily. And also in the long run, you know, I trust that in the long run, if you give people more information, that it makes them smarter and makes them better equipped to make better decisions. Um, has my confidence in that sometimes been shaken? You know, I mean, I don't know, maybe, right? I don't think the world's become like smarter necessarily about how it uses data in politics at least, but I do think in the long run, in trusting people um, that if you give people better information, they will derive all types of benefits from that in the short term and the long term is, is a big part of why I do what I do at 538. Can I jump in on one point, which yes. I think this is so important, and I, I really do believe in journalism and, and what journalists are doing. I do think you, you raised or you sort of said one thing that I've now seen, now that I understand data a little more, I've now seen a couple times where the way the data work is done by the journalists, I think there are pieces missing or there are assumptions that are built in that aren't necessarily right and that if you were running a model at 538, you wouldn't run it that way. And the one thing I've seen is I think because there's such a data gap for the rest of us of sort of understanding or for most people, what the journalists say is really taken, you know, a lot of people yeah. can't do that underlying analysis. So I am a huge believer in journalism and I guess the question I sort of have is how do we make sure that data work happens well because it does matter and I think it does define opinions. I'm I mean, sorry, I, I'm taking Corbin's job. I just I have think an answer a lot that, about that other journalists might not like, which is that I think journalists should be more aggressive about calling out bad work from their competitors and colleagues. Um, I think there's a thing now, you know, officially the ABC News, 538 owned by ABC News now, like code of conduct says that you should not criticize the work of other journalists. Um, you know, I as a journalist cannot really abide by that and don't really abide by that because people who have knowledge about like, what's it really mean to build an election forecast? There's like nothing that infuriates me more than like a, a badly designed election forecast, particularly one that's like overconfident. So it overweights how heavy a favorite might be, which is easy to do if you kind of build a bad model. You know, I think people should be willing to, to in a professional way, um, identify cases where they have knowledge over what the right procedures are and what things you have to think about and should, um, should sanction like bad work. So I have some, some questions from the audience and secretly in this 
list of questions from the audience. I was told that I know Governor Baker has a, has a tight schedule, so maybe we'll ask uh, uh, one of these questions. I, I was going to turn it back to sports, too, with a, with a hypothetical, but um, I'll take this one. What do you think organizations are not doing enough of today and should keep in mind as they further progress with their analytics initiatives? Well, I would say in government, it gets back to your point, which is that we collect a lot of data for a lot of purposes that were historically important. But in terms of thinking about data as a tool that can help us improve the quality of the work that we do generally, I think we have a long way to go. And part of our problem, um, and this is not an easy one to solve, is governments are big and complicated, and they got tons and tons of data sets all over the place. And so just getting a holistic look at some issue you're trying to get a holistic look at requires you to peel it from a whole bunch of different places and to sort of fight your way through all the issues that are associated with doing that. It's, not, it's, hard, it's hard to get data across secretariats and have people agree to share it and all the rest because people, it's there for a purpose, it was collected for a purpose, and what you might want to use it for might not be consistent with the purpose it was originally designed for. And we're not allowed to just morph on that in some cases, we need statutory authority. In other cases, um, we really got to explain why we're doing it. But I think in some ways, one of our greatest challenges is trying to figure out how, um, how to ask the right question and then to determine if we can find the right data sets and then even with the imperfections in them, um, you know, make a decision to head in a particular direction and then make adjustments based on what actually happens in real life. And, you know, we pay a really heavy price if you're in the public sector if you get that wrong. Much heavier than somebody in the private sector pays. And I think that makes it a little harder for people to take chances. I mean, I think um, organizations that use data sometimes put too much emphasis on technical skills um, and not enough on asking good questions, having, developing good intuition for data, right, and understanding the context a lot more. Um, and kind of having a, a broader set of skills that you bring to the table. Um, you know, we go through a lot of applicants at 538 who are maybe in their first job out of college or interns or whatever else and have like much better technical skills than the people on staff do. But you can't really trust anything they say because they don't understand the problems they're trying to study. Um, and so understand like don't isolate data as just like kind of one part of the problem. It's kind of, it's, you know, statistics is the way that we understand um, or not the only way, but one of the ways we understand how systems work, right? And so it's making sure that you always um, keep that context open and don't just have kind of data people and not data people, but have, have constant conversations between everyone in the organization. Okay. Um, so we took office the way the registry of motor vehicles measured uh, performance with respect to customer wait times was the average time it took people to get through the system. Um, and they could nail it with respect to what the average was by every office. Um, I said, I don't really care what the average is. What I care about is from the time somebody enters to the time they leave, how long does it take? And proportionally, how many of the people are getting in and out in 20 minutes? How many people are getting in and out in 30, 50, 60, more than an hour? That's what I care about. And that was a completely different way of thinking about the context of the problem we were trying to solve. And we changed almost everything about the way we measured it, and that led to a whole bunch of changes about the way it was operated. And for you know the last seven or eight months, pretty much 90% of the folks who go in are out in 30 minutes or less, which is a heck of an improvement over where it was. But that was because the data that people were measuring was the wrong measure, and they were really good at it, but it wasn't measuring the right thing. 
I think I would say very quickly, um, and I agree very much with, with both of those examples, I, I think I think we have to also stay focused on the culture change aspect of using data, that I often find that the technology is the easy part, but getting people to embrace it and understand it and really use it effectively, I think, matters. And I also think the conversation we started having about bias and thinking about how we use data, when we use data, what, what we're comfortable with and what we're not comfortable with, I think that is a really important conversation to push forward in all, in all spaces where we haven't had it. And that, and that is especially true in the public sector and in journalism where people, in many cases, start with a hypothesis, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then if you find a data set that tells you what you want to hear, because so much of this thing is about this, um, people, yeah, exactly. you're, you're absolutely right about that. Often the data is so vast that you have to have a hypothesis to be testing. Yeah. I, I, I'll end it with that. It was a great, great uh, way to end the panel. Thank you, uh, Governor Baker, Nate Silver, and appreciate it. Thank you. If you want to hear these panels in person next year on March 6th and 7th, 2020 in Boston, please register for the 14th annual MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference at sloansportsconference.com. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.